You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor-at-large here at the Washington Post. My colleague Jonathan Capehart is on assignment. We'll start this morning with the latest news out of Ukraine with Post National Security reporter Dan Lamoth. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Can you bring us up to speed? What's the state of play in Ukraine this morning? Uh, did the Russians press their advantage overnight? Uh, and if so, where? If not, tell us why. I think the most notable thing that, that, that a lot of us were watching with, a, with some deep breaths last night was the situation at the nuclear plant uh, where the Russian military shelled the area uh, and, and hit a building at the plant, at the outskirts of the plant. Uh, that, I think, goes to show how many unintended consequences you can have in this sort of thing. Uh, more broadly, uh, shelling continues on Kyiv, the capital, uh, and Kharkiv, up, up in the northeast. Uh, and it looks like Mariupol's under serious uh, duress in the southeast of the country. Uh, it, you know, you've got forces right on the outskirts, uh, and that, that city in particular, I think, uh, may be the first to fall, at least in terms of the major ones. About the nuclear station, this isn't the first round of those we've had. We, we went through a uh, series of reports about uh, Chernobyl uh, earlier in the week. What's the uh, proximate danger uh, of having a nuclear power station uh, in the line of fire? Would you just clarify that for people who may not understand? Uh, yes, I mean, the, this is not a Chernobyl situation. The, you know, uh, the, the experts last night were, were pretty uh, forceful in, in pointing out that this is not a situation where an explosion was likely. Uh, but leaks, uh, meltdowns, th those are more the concerns that I think were out that were out there. Uh, as it turns out, this building was on the outskirts. There appears to be no uh, immediate danger, uh, but that was unclear for a while. Uh, and the shelling continues in the region. So it, this is something that Russia, uh, be it due to a lack of precision or, or sort of this indiscriminate nature of their attack, uh, it's a real concern. And what part of the country is that uh, particular station in, Dan? Uh, this is in the south, uh, but but at this point you've got Russian forces uh, pretty much everywhere in large, you know, in significant numbers except for the west. Uh, Mariupol was also under siege yesterday, and it started, I believe, the Russians started to cut off the water supply uh, in that area. Our own reporting showed that um, that uh, the water supplies uh, in that area are becoming critical. Uh, what is the Russian tactic uh, of cutting off such things uh, uh, designed to do? So the, uh, this would basically fall in the category of siege warfare, uh, where a force, uh, when they cannot easily take a city, uh, and at this point the Russians have tried and seemingly failed, uh, when they cannot easily take a city just by kind of you know running in quick and out, uh, they'll, they'll resort to kind of encircling that city and then bombarding it. Uh, and the idea is that you force everybody to ground there uh, and then, you know, food, water and ammunition all become uh, scarce at, over time. Uh, that appears to be what they're doing in multiple locations right now. And the, a siege approach would typically take how long for the Russians to overcome uh, that half dozen or dozen cities they're trying this tactic on? Do you have a sense of that? Is it it, a honestly, is it, is it a month? Is it, what do you think? Uh, I, I think you're looking at days at minimum and weeks or months, uh, depending on the scenario. Uh, you know, in the past, uh, Grozny, uh, one example, uh, the Russians did this back in the 90s. Uh, it took them a long time to, to actually take the city. Uh, 
uh, and there wasn't a whole lot left to the city when they were done. Um, what are your folks telling you about uh, the state of the long-suffering convoy that has been stuck in a traffic jam in the northern part of Ukraine on the way to Kyiv? Is there any movement there? There appears to be no significant movement, uh, and, and the thought is still that fuel, um, you know, it's really a logistical issue as best we can tell. Uh, the Russians appear to be regrouping. Right. I was going to ask you, what are your, the folks at the Pentagon telling you about the state of Russian forces in general? Uh, are they fully committed now? Uh, are, are there second echelon forces still waiting to come in? Um, talk to us a little bit about the order of battle from the Russian side now, a week into this. Uh, we, we typically get a pretty good update out of the Pentagon uh, kind of mid-morning. Uh, so th this is as of yesterday, but as of yesterday, it was 90 percent, give or take, of the forces they had arrayed, combat power they had arrayed at the border prior to invasion, we're in that now in the country. So assumedly, we're, we're at minimum 90, probably a couple percent higher today. Right. And you think that's in terms of total troops, 100,000, 90 percent of 50,000? Uh, what does that come down to in terms of sheer numbers? Uh, the numbers are a bit fuzzy. Yeah, we obviously had uh, you know, widely reported 150,000 plus at the, at the front end of this. This is combat power, not total forces. So tens of thousands, right. certainly. Uh, but but the odds are that they still have you know hospitals and things like that that are you know still more in the rear. Uh, what Russian military action are you looking for over uh, the next couple of days and into the weekend? Uh, I think I'll be in uh, Mariupol. I think is a major concern. Uh, I think the Russians have had more success in the south, uh, in part seemingly because Crimea is there, uh, and they can use that as a reasonably close base. Uh, to reinforce, resupply, that sort of thing. So they're not having the same logistical issues that they're having in the north down in Mariupol area. Uh, I think Kharkiv's also under significant duress. Kiev likely takes more time. Do you see signs of the escalation that many expected uh, earlier in the week uh, as the Russians try to overcome the resistance they're facing? Any signs of, uh, of escalation that really changes the nature of the war so far in the last day or so? Yes, I think that the, 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 this deliberate shelling seemingly of government buildings, uh, of TV stations, of things of that sort, uh, th those are no longer military targets. Uh, so, so we've moved into a different phase in that regard. Also, the, the, the kinds of weapons they're using. You know, when this invasion began, they were largely using relatively precise missiles, either off of ships, uh, cruise missiles, things like that. Uh, or some ballistic missiles that were being fired from right at the border. We've moved into a situation now, part, in part because the Russians are closer, and in part because we don't really know how many of these precise missiles they have, uh, where they're now using sort of area weapons, where they're launching you know, rocket systems and things of that sort that are really more just you hit whatever you hit, and they're not able to pinpoint it. Right. And what, what is the strategic value of those kinds of weapons? For the Russians, what are they trying to accomplish by changing that the nature of, of, of what what weapons they're using? Uh, I think one piece of it is it's it's what they have, it's what they have in their arsenal, uh, and then I think another significant piece of it is it, it you know it forces civilians and it forces others uh, to hold in place to take cover. Uh, it allows the advance to continue. Uh, it allows the Russians to continue to encircle the city. Uh, and at some point, they may try to actually send forces in significant numbers in, whether that's days or weeks from now is really kind of unclear.
Do, do your sources at the Pentagon uh, say anything about what they have learned about the Russian, at least ground forces, as a result of this first week? Anything that surprises them? Uh, in in part, they're not they're not that great. Uh, you know, we're seeing problems uh, with logistics. We're seeing problems with food. We're seeing problems with morale. Uh, you know, the, the, there are units that have put down their arms and, and more or less said, this isn't what we signed up for. Uh, so those are not things that you would expect in a first class military. They have large numbers. They have large numbers of weapons, large numbers of people. But things aren't going as well as they had hoped. There had been some growing evidence uh, over the last couple of days that Putin may have set his sights on territory beyond Ukraine. Um, does that seem more likely as this has progressed? Uh, and, and where are U.S. officials most concerned about Putin heading if he goes past the Ukraine border? Uh, so some of this, I think, falls in the category aspirational, especially considering how bogged down the Russian military appears to be now. Uh, but but in a matter of, you know, months and, and really, I think this is something to look for going forward, you know, a year or two years from now. What does Putin do in a longer timeline? Uh, Moldova is a concern, uh, you know, it being another non-NATO state, but it kind of in the area. Uh, and then you're starting to look toward the Baltic states and some of the ones that are in NATO. And that obviously has a lot of tripwires where, you know, NATO nations, the United States and others would then have an obligation to get more directly involved. That's a, that's a significant concern long term. To the extent you can discuss it, how many U.S. and NATO forces are, appear to be on the ground in those frontline countries of Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Latvia? Uh, are those are there numbers from what you can gather and report? Are those increasing? Uh, it's it's held steady for the last week or so. It, it appears to be we kind of are where we are at least for the short term. It looks to be somewhere in the ballpark of about fifteen thousand American forces in the eastern countries. Uh, you know, Poland. Lithuania, Latvia, that sort of area. Uh, but there's 90,000 American forces, give or take, in the European theater, uh, many of which are there permanently. You know, they kind of rotate on three-year assignments. They're considered permanently stationed there. And then, yes, there are tens of thousands of additional forces from Britain and Spain and Germany and places like that. So there's a lot of military power there overall. And And... What are uh, you hearing about the sort of order of battle or, or strength of the Ukrainian army and how it has been doing along with its territorial force, which is made up of volunteers? Uh, the Ukrainian military is not that large. It doesn't have uh, that significant of firepower. So what we've seen them been able to do is really remarkable. Uh, it's a combination of creativity, um, of uh, imagination uh, and, and then stri and straight up toughness. Uh, the way they have fought, the way they have been able to dig in, the way they have been able to hit and run and take out significant numbers of armored vehicles, uh, all that is impressive. Dan, thanks so much for giving us this uh, updated reporting this morning uh, as the story in Ukraine continues to unfold. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to bring the discussion now to our opinions columnists, uh, my colleagues Chuck Lane and Ruth Marcus. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Ruth. Hi, good, good morning. morning. Thanks for coming. Uh, Chuck, I'm, I, I'd like to ask you, the, since you're an old cold warrior, <laughs> is, this, is this the end? Is what the last week has uh, amounts to the end of the post-Cold War period, as a lot of people have suggested? Do you agree with that? I think there are a lot of signs that it does. Um, one thing that was extremely uh, significant that occurred this 
past week was the uh, decision of the German government to uh, radically increase defense spending and to improve its military posture. They had been uh, uh, essentially disarming since the reunification of Germany and engaged in a significant policy of outreach and interdependence, particularly on the dimension of energy with the Russians. They have essentially repudiated those 30 years of policy. I think the uh, obviously the security architecture, all the treaties and agreements and memoranda that were signed between NATO and Russia that assumed uh, that everyone would respect the existing boundaries in Eastern Europe, that's all out the window. In short, it's much easier to say what's ended than what has been, um, I hesitate to use the word born, but something, some horrible new situation has arisen that will inevitably lead to a different security architecture. Uh, Ruth, if Chuck is right and we're at a pivot here, does that create a test for both political parties and, and how they step forward uh, uh, in terms of their own posture on foreign policy? And can you talk a little bit about each of those challenges for both parties? Uh, well, I, I do want to underscore what Chuck said. Um, uh, horrible new moment, but also in many ways a gratifying new moment. It's clear that Vladimir Putin, and maybe he had grounds to, underestimated the West and its resolve and its unity. And I think we all need to be thankful, since you asked me to talk about politics, um, that this is happening while Joe Biden is in office and not Donald Trump, because God knows what uh, Mr. Not a Huge Fan of NATO um, would have been able to do to uh, unify that alliance in the face of this. I, you know, politics used to stop at the, we're all old enough on this um, uh, event right now to remember that politics used to stop at the water's edge. And the challenge is um, in significant part for the Republican party that's kind of balancing its antipathy, natural antipathy and understandable antipathy to Vladimir Putin with its um, fear of Donald Trump who does not have natural antipathy towards Putin. And so it is going to need to recalibrate, and I hope actually recalibrate in a way that um, bolsters its resolve to not just stand up to Putin, um, but also to stand up to Trump. Um, it also, uh, it's less of a challenge for Democrats, I think, but it is an opportunity for President Biden to show his foreign policy chops, to show that he can lead to show that he is resolute in standing up to Putin. Chuck, does, does Biden get some credit for uh, unifying NATO in advance of this? And uh, what are the next unifying NATO challenges he faces here as we go forward? I think, and I've talked to Republicans privately about this, across the board, Republicans and Democrats recognize that the president managed this crisis pretty darn well. Um, particularly in terms of what they call alliance management, keeping everybody uh, in NATO uh, on the same page as they prepared a response. There was some skill shown in releasing the uh, secrets that we had gleaned, we, the US intelligence, uh, had gleaned about Putin's advance plan. Um, so in terms of the before the crisis, uh, he, he earns high marks. I think it's still a bit of an incomplete grade on what next, because even though he spoke quite movingly about the support the United States and NATO are, are giving for Ukraine and how much the West admires Ukraine, 
His State of the Union address didn't really sketch out in firm terms the what next and the what's going to be called for by this new situation. There was no mention, for example, of increased defense spending or a plan for revising the NATO architecture. Um, it, it felt a little bit like they still weren't sure about how to carry forward a big new plan for global security in the wake of this. And I do think that's where um, he's gonna really need to rise to the occasion next. And uh, I, I agree with Ruth, it is, uh, you know, it's fortunate uh, that Donald Trump wasn't president during this crisis. And I also think on, on the whole, it makes it less likely that Donald Trump will ever be president again. And one reason is precisely that the Western allies have stepped up, increased their defense spending, sharing the burden with the United States, which was a perennial US complaint, even under other presidents. And I think that is actually one of the, uh, one of the good things that has come out of this is a greater basis for cooperation, a more equal basis for cooperation in the transatlantic uh, alliance. Ruth, you wrote a column this week uh, after the President's State of the Union speech uh, in which you detected signs of a unity agenda um, when a lot of people heard something different. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, those signals, you were, the telemetry that you were able to, to hear? Yes. Um, the I thought there were three State of the Union speeches. Um, one all melded into one, not for the first time, because uh, these are laundry lists, of course. Uh, the first one was about Ukraine. The second one was a dutiful um, ticking off of the Democratic wish list, which was not accompanied by a lot of either focusing on what really needs to get done and what my top priorities are, or any real sense of conviction on the part of President Biden or seeming conviction on the part of President Biden that um, this any of this was going to be accomplished. So I thought that the actually most interesting part of the speech came at the end, um, which was this kind of unstated, um, but similarly important kind of the era of big government moment, uh, if, if everybody uh, recalls that from Bill Clinton's uh, State of the Union in 1996. Um, he, President Biden didn't say the era of the Democratic wish list and my ability to be FDR is over, but he tacitly recognized that by calling for this unity agenda. I did not think that we are gonna now move to a unity agenda because I don't see a lot of reason for the Republicans who had been uh, ignored by the president and sh shut out by the president when he had the votes to muscle his program through with an only Democratic majority. They have no um, incentive to go along, but the president has an incentive to make it look like he's being moderate, that he is not the crazy radical liberal that people are, that, that his critics have been saying. And so to argue as much to disaffected moderate Democrats and maybe some wavering Republicans, if those exist, that yes, he cares about the things you care about. His four things on the unity agenda were opioids, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm not gonna do a Rick Perry here and forget one, um, opioids, veterans, mental health, and I am doing a Rick Perry, cancer. and the last one cancer. was cancer, thank you. I got it, I got it before you said it, Duffy. Um, Bonafrey, Bonafrey. Uh, who among us could disagree with that? Um, 
uh, they also happen to be things that how would you really know if you were making progress on that? You can't, you could pass some money, but you can't pass a bill to end the opioid crisis. You can't pass a bill to um, end cancer or else, you know, we've spent a lot of money on it. It would have happened already. So this is feel good stuff, but it's a tacit acknowledgement that the president is about to enter a new yeah, era. I, I noticed that there was, there was also uh, a bipartisan applause for most of those last four. Chuck, you haven't talked about what you made of the president's address from a domestic point of view, so go. I thought uh, it was the usual laundry list. Uh, I think it was, uh, I had the sense that he was just dutifully going through the Democratic Party wish list without a great deal of uh, expectation that very much of it will manage to get passed. I was struck by what he said about inflation, which of course is the number one, seemingly number one concern of domestic, on the domestic front for voters. And he seemed to sort of suggest like, if we just buy American, prices will go down. And I thought that was a bit of a punt because honestly, no economist really would, would take that argument very seriously. Um, so I think he's a little bit hemmed in by inflation on the domestic front. And that part of the speech felt like something he was just kind of putting down to kind of hold hold time. As, as Ruth said, the, the era of build back better is probably over. And he's just trying to, you know, get through the State of the Union uh, uh, moment without uh, too much more damage to an already very low uh, approval rating. Uh, can I just follow Chuck with that on, on the inflation question that you mentioned? Uh, he, the president will be under pressure uh, from Republicans and probably Democrats eventually to do something about sanctioning uh, Russia's oil economy, uh, which is the, the hugest part of its, of its foreign exchange and funds the Russian government um, mostly with Western money. Uh, what do you think the Biden administration's uh, approach to that will be, uh, how far off do you think those calls are? Uh, can they do it? Well, in theory, 600,000 barrels a day, which is what apparently we get from Russia, is easy to replace. My understanding is it's concentrated in Hawaii, that it's consumed in Hawaii for some reason, and so you wouldn't want to leave Hawaii uh, or whoever is getting the 600,000 barrel sort of stranded without any recourse. Um, I think they're going to be a little bit on the defensive because the Republicans can raise the argument like, why are you restraining domestic production? And it does sort of point to the jam that the entire transatlantic world is in over energy. And I think one of the big things that's going to come out of this crisis is a lot of a rethink about the sources of energy. You're going to see renewed um, uh, emphasis on energy independence. Incidentally, that's one area where Buy America probably is strategically wise, uh, shifting our sources of whatever energy we get, whether it's uh, conventional fossil fuels or green energy back toward domestic sources. I have the impression, again, that they're still in crisis mode and haven't fully thought through a new plan on that. But I expect them to try to articulate one. You know, Ruth, um, the president has gotten high marks for how quickly and uh, quickly is really the most of it, how quickly he's moved on sanctions against Russia uh, and a lot of support across the aisle. Does he have room to go further? Uh, and, and the problem here may be as much with the public as it is with, you know, other politicians. How much how much further can Biden go uh, without putting his own economic uh, stature at, at risk? 
Right. Well, that that's the question because uh, you do you impose the sanctions hoping to hurt not Russians but Russia in the form of Putin. But you want to pick. You want to start with the sanctions that aren't going to hurt Americans. Once you start um, limiting uh, imports of Russian oil, once you start sanctioning the Russian energy sector, then you're doing two things. You're threatening um, the interests of allies who might not be willing to go along with that, who have their own greater reliance on Russian energy. And you start to contradict what you said in the State of the Union, which is combating inflation is your top priority. People see prices rise in their uh, energy bills and their prices at the pump, and they really start to squeal. And that's the box the president's in. You know, the State of the Union speech, uh, the president didn't mention January 6th or any of the aftermath, the investigations, um, some of the, the uh, uh, con convictions and other cases that are moving forward, both locally and at the Justice Department. Um, uh, and yet there's some news on that front this week, Ruth. Uh, can you just bring us up to speed on what's going on uh, uh, more than a year later? Sure, uh, the news is what looks like a little bit of a pincer movement, but I'm gonna then explain why that appearance might be a little overstated. Uh, two things are happening simultaneously. The Justice Department is doing what the Justice Department does, which is build its cases from the ground up so that it is moving up the chain. It is now secured cooperation from some of the folks who were providing, um, among other things, security for Roger Stone, uh, during the um, uh, uprising insurrection. And once you start to get people to turn, then you can get people to turn, you're building up the food chain. Simultaneously, the January 6th committee in a filing seeking to overcome John Eastman, the crazy, I think that's a fair word to say, the lawyer who um, proposed the crazy notion that the vice president could simply overturn the results of the election if only he had the guts to do it, um, to overcome his claims of attorney-client privilege with his conversations with the president by invoking what's called the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. The crime-fraud exception would be, the, just, the uh, January 6th committee said, that there was, that there was a reason to believe that President Trump may have um, conspired to obstruct Congress and do other things that would amount to federal crimes uh, in his conversations with Eastland and others. Uh, here's what I have to say about that. Don't get your hopes up um, that you're going to see Donald Trump uh, taken off in handcuffs or serving time in prison anytime soon. And, and I would add a little sliver of be careful what you wish for um, if you do want to get your hopes up. The don't get your hopes up is it's easy to say that there may be evidence of this in order in a civil proceeding to over to overcome the attorney-client privilege. It is a far different and much more complicated matter to conclude as a federal prosecutor not only that you can prove um, the elements of the crime, but that you can also convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt to convict the president of the United States. That's a very tough uphill battle, and it, it's something that could be to come. It's a, a the biggest headache that Attorney General Merrick Garland will face, and he's got a lot of them. Um, but I am not betting on 
an indictment of the president anytime soon or probably anytime. And I have to say for me, gratifying as that might be, I retain a significant amount of nervousness that charging um, our former presidents criminally um, has a banana republic feel to it. And that quite honestly makes me nervous. Yeah, and could set off a, a tit for tat game until forever. Um, until forever. Let's talk a little, forever, right. Uh, Chuck, let's talk a little bit about the nation and, and COVID. Uh, it was another week in which restrictions came down and uh, both uh, on city and statewide basis, also in, in many schools. Um, the Senate uh, had a symbolic vote this week uh, calling the, the pandemic uh, emergency declaration uh, reckless. Uh, uh, are people uh, still using this as a, uh, a weapon for their agendas, uh, or do you feel that uh, this is something that is going out the air is going out of COVID as a political tool. This, it's, it's, it's really remarkable in the same week that the CDC essentially declared no masking and relaxed for 70% of the country, you had a convoy begin heading toward Washington to complain about the um, uh, COVID restrictions. And you had Ron DeSantis sort of barking at a bunch of students who had the temerity to wear masks in his presence. So you get the impression of a week in which that issue is kind of in flux, but the general tendency and trend is away from restriction. And I think that is clearly reflective of the administration's understanding that they had pretty much reached the point where the public was not really in light of the, the health risk prepared to shoulder tremendous restrictions going forward. That could all change if there's a new variant and so on. But I think the general trend in the country is toward finding a way to live with this as an endemic condition as opposed to an emergency. Ruth, you have a almost fingertip feel for how the country is, is, is handling its COVID anxieties. Uh, do you hear or see uh, a, a lightening of the mood, uh, despite the continuing threats? Absolutely, I think, and I actually worry that it's um, premature lightening. Um, it, it, I'm struck by two things. The first uh, is how much the Republicans don't really seem to wanna give up on COVID as a political tool. So even as you say, the CDC lightens everything and. President Biden says it's time to get back to business as usual and we're not closing schools and every federal workers are coming back. They they can't quit it. Republicans can't quit COVID because it's been such a powerful political um, tool for them to talk about the government telling you what to do and bullying you. At the same time, I think that we we are all lurching. I see this in my own family. I actually honestly see it in my own behavior where I've gone from super careful to, I think, um, not careful enough. Why didn't I put on my mask when I was in the office yesterday and in the elevator? Um, we're all, we are all tired of this. And I fear that while thousands of people are dying every day, we are setting ourselves up for um, giving up habits that are should be more ingrained and just being a little bit more prudent in the shorter term. Chuck, one, you mentioned the convoy. Uh, 
Uh, is that really about COVID? You don't really think it's about COVID, do you? To be honest, Mike, I don't know what's on, what it's about. Uh, I, I think it's ostensibly about COVID and about freedom and so on. Um, but I think, I think it, to respond a little bit to what Ruth said, I think the um, Republican energy from this is not going to die out because it's kind of a looking in hindsight at what we almost let them take away from us kind of energy is still attached to it. And um, that's why I believe the administration, if it can, if it can, consistent with public health, uh, avoid a reimposition of anything resembling the, the lockdowns and so on of the past, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens this weekend with the trucks. I, I agree. I, I, it, it's sort of yet to take shape. Um, before we run out of time, I want to ask Ruth about Judge Jackson and the upcoming confirmation process. Um, Ruth, you noted in a column this week uh, that uh, the judge uh, has a 2% reversal rate, uh, which sounds like something out of basketball. So tell us what that really means. He, he, look, you, ju <laughs> no judge wants to be reversed. Um, every judge is reversed. Sometimes those reversals are correct. Um, and sometimes those the, sometimes I would argue that the judge got it right and um, the appeals court got it wrong. But 2%, as I understand it, is on the significantly low range of where Judge Jackson is among her colleagues on the district court. And you can only um, compare like, like things. And so you can only judge whether 2% is low or high by knowing how it compares to others. My understanding is she is in good stead. I think that what we, we're seeing this kind of, she's going to be confirmed. Republicans as a whole are not going to be putting up a huge fight, but they're gonna be throwing up a bunch of things. And we saw them from Senator McConnell this week. First of all, why won't Judge Jackson come out and say the court shouldn't be expanded? Well, of all the things a justice doesn't have any um, say on, it's whether or not the court should be expanded. I don't think it should be, but if it is, that will be up to Congress, not to the Supreme Court. Uh, number two, what about this flood of dark money that is going to support Justice Jackson, uh, to support the possibility of a Justice Jackson? Um, that is, there's, I, I thought that I've seen a lot of hypocritical things in Washington during my time here. This one takes the cake. The people you, who have spent tens of millions of dollars in dark money to confirm nominees over the last decades are now suddenly horrified by it. Do I have a second to say the last thing? No. Nope. One. No. Okay. Forget it. Um, Stop. And Look, so Ruth, you know, she's, you know, this. I gotta go. Ruth, Ruth, we got to stop. I'm sorry. Uh, Ruth, Marcus, Chuck Lane, two people with very low reversal rates, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, and thank you all for joining us as well. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.